Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everybody. This is Peter Serrata from SlashFilm.com, and you're listening to SlashFilm Daily. Uh, this is a new podcast that we're doing daily, Monday through Friday, to give you the latest movie news and expose you to some of the cool features that we have on the site. Today on the podcast, we have Brad Omen, who you know as Ethan Anderton on the site. Brad, are you there? Yeah, I'm right here. And uh, we're, we're going to be talking about a bunch of movie news, including Han Solo, Spider-Man, Rick and Morty, a bunch of sequels being announced. And Brad on the site saw uh, Edgar Wright's first movie, Fistful of Fingers. Uh, you know, it's not it's not available anywhere. So Brad is going to tell us about uh, Edgar Wright's undistributed first film. Um, what, what have you been up to, Brad? Uh, you know, just been doing the news grind at Slash Film. I've been seeing a lot of summer movies and just trying to keep up with all of this crazy Han Solo nonsense. <laughs> yes, the Han Solo nonsense is uh, is crazy. Like, you know, this has never happened before. Or, I mean, well, it's happened before, but rarely on this level that directors are fired during the middle of a shoot. Um, you know, Lord and Miller uh, have been fired from this Star Wars standalone movie with only a reported three or four weeks left of production. And that was all reported, I believe, last week. Yeah, yeah. last week is when it went down. And um, since then, we've been kind of picking up the pieces, learning what was going on. Uh, there's been a bunch of pieces reported this week from Hollywood Reporter and Entertainment Weekly. And you had a nice rundown on the site uh, explaining everything. So tell us, what do we know about the Han Solo controversy? So initially when the news was announced, the official statement was that it was just for creative differences. Uh, what Kathleen Kennedy and Lawrence Kasdan as executive producers from Lucasfilm wanted out of the Han Solo movie 
was not what Phil Lord and Chris Miller were delivering. And Phil Lord and Chris Miller thought that they were directing maybe a different kind of movie than they thought that they were hired to make to begin with based on their background of making movies like 21 Jump Street and the Lego movie. So since then, we've we've started to learn more details about exactly where Lucasfilm and Lord and Miller were clashing on set. Uh, now, one of the reports from Entertainment Weekly says that Lord and Miller thought that they were making more of a space fantasy comedy that kind of broke the mold of what Star Wars usually is, and that um, they brought their improvisational style that makes you know Twenty One Jump Street work so well to a Star Wars set, but it didn't seem to be jibing because this is the kind of set where the scale and scope is so big that you really can't do as much improvisation as you would like because you have all these department heads that you have to let know you know, what's going on so that they can do what they need to do uh, to give the directors and the scene everything that it needs. And then on the story side of things, they were concerned because it seemed like some of the improvisation that was ha- coming from the actors, which was encouraged by Lord and Miller, was starting to change the story a little bit. And when you have something as beloved as Star Wars canon on the table... Yeah. You can't really do a lot of, you know, changing of certain details on the fly like that and, you know, not have to answer for it quickly. So I imagine it seems like all of that stuff was kind of creating a headache for Lucasfilm but, in general. But it, also, it was also reported that there wasn't a variety of options in the editing room. Like for, for yeah, one particular it. day, there was only, you know, Kennedy was expecting to see 12 to 15 options when it came from camera placement of a right. giving scene. And there was only uh, three. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so it, seems, it seems like their shooting style was also something that was creating issues because they weren't getting as much coverage as they thought they needed in order to have uh, a cut that they could work with well once it was in the editing room. And speaking of the editing room, that's where, you know, basically where the decision to fire Lord and Miller came from. Uh, um, apparently, th- th- this came about because uh, Alden Ehrenreich raised some concerns about uh, how Lord and Miller were directing the movie and... They thought that their more comedic approach was starting to overshadow the core of what Han Solo, who Han Solo is as a character. So he raised these concerns to Lucasfilm, and that's when Lucasfilm decided to start assembling footage to get a look at what they were dealing with. And when they were looking at the footage, they apparently well, were not happy with Alden Ehrenreich's performance from what they were seeing. So they hired an acting coach to help him better work with Lord and Miller. But then... As they continued to assemble footage together, they realized that they didn't really have a movie that worked as a whole. That some of the scenes themselves worked individually, but when they were cut together into a a larger film... And and they even hired a new editor, uh, the guy that did uh, Alien Covenant and The Martian, to try to make make sense of it, and they still Exactly. And uh, yeah, it apparently didn't work. And so uh, a lot of people have have taken... The Alden Ehrenreich thing to be a huge concern because the one of the standout quotes was uh, that's I think it was Star Wars Newsnet said that someone had described it as being Ace Ventura like, and I think that that might be an exaggeration. And if anything, it might have been just one of the options that Lord and Miller had done, where they they went for the full on comedic side of Han Solo. Um, and so I, I don't think we have to worry about you know Han Solo being this completely goofy character in the movie, especially now that it's being overhauled. But e- even with Lord and Miller, I think that maybe they just tapped into the funny stuff that we see Han Solo do in the Star Wars trilogy, of which there are a lot of things, you know, like his arguments with Chewie and some of the ways he responds to Leia. And like he's a very sarcastic, 
guy. And Lord and Miller know how to do, you know, these fast one line uh, one liners and also uh, quick banter conversations. And I can imagine Han having those kinds of conversations. Um, so I, the Ace Ventura thing, you know, it, whether it's accurate or not, who knows? There's so much gossip going around about it, this. It's hard situation. to judge that because there's been so few people that have seen the actual footage. Uh, at least from what I have heard from my inside sources is, you know, these guys had a hundred day shooting schedule, which is more than most movies. And, um, you know, the, the new editor they hired couldn't put the footage together. He said it was like cutting a documentary from what I hear. And, um, you know, a decision like this doesn't come lightly. You know, Kathleen Kennedy is, has decades of experience producing movies and you know this thing like this doesn't happen unless it, it needs to happen um you know there there was times i guess on set that they you know lord and miller weren't starting until noon when you know crew call was at nine uh so i mean that, that's maybe maybe it was just too big of a production for them i mean they're used to you know running around new orleans with two people you know, and, and a small crew. Maybe this larger production was just beyond them. Yeah, there was a pause from the crew when um, they announced Lord and Miller had been fired. But they, they, but there's since been clarification. Apparently, it wasn't really applause about Lord and Miller being fired. It was just more of a general morale boost applause that happened at the end of the meeting where that announcement was made. So it was more so just like applauding like all right let's go and let's finish this movie as opposed to all right we got rid of the directors that we didn't like that that, that makes a lot more sense because I, I feel like no one would be applauding someone getting fired um and i also think this is ironic by the way that we're talking about this you know a week or two after you know a book of henry came out and we we saw all these professional critics and people on twitter you know film twitter you know uh demanding that a filmmaker be fired from a movie and it's just in my opinion gross uh <laughs> despite what you, you think of that filmmaker or that movie it, it just seemed gross to me uh let's move on to other things because this week is all spider-man all the time um the spider-man junket happened in new york and uh there's been a lot of a lot to come out of that including so much um, information yeah we'll get to the silliest of the information first is uh, there's been this fan theory going around that in Iron Man 2, there's this little kid who, uh, I believe he's at the fairgrounds at Stark yeah, Expo? The, yeah, he's at the Stark Expo. And he, um, you know, he's in an Iron Man, like, he has an Iron Man uh, toy helmet on, and, uh, you know, Iron Man kind of comes to his aid and saves him, and, he's you know, he says, nice work, kid. And it, it's it's been kind of like, a, you know, this fan theory that that is young Peter Parker, you know, at the Stark Expo fairgrounds, you know, what would that have been? Like almost 10 years ago, right? Um, and it seems like Tom Holland has confirmed that at the junket. He said he had a conversation with Kevin Feige. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think it's, I mean, it's it, it's it's nothing that they're probably going to ever mention in the, uh, the movies. But it, it's kind of cool on a. I know it's a retcon, but it's kind of cool on a fan level that like we we got to see, uh, you know, young Peter Parker, you know, appear earlier in the MCU canon. Yeah, it's almost like the opposite of a retcon actually, because like they're adding to the canon as opposed to taking well, something away. Yeah, when they first announced the Spider-Man movie, I I always I was pitching that they should have used the kid from Iron Man three. 
to be to Peter Parker and he should be like super young. Uh, that probably wouldn't have worked out as well as, you know, Spider-Man did work out. Uh, let's talk about, um, there's a lot of news of around Spider-Man uh, and his involvement in the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and uh, we now know that his role in Infinity War is probably going to be on the same level as Civil War, which he only appeared in, what, two scenes? Yeah, the I would say maybe he had like ten minutes of screen time. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, it makes sense. You, you look at the character roster for Infinity War, and you know we're gonna have. I, I think that the Scarlett Johansson was quoted recently as saying that there's a scene where there are thirty characters in one scene that are that are like in an action sequence, um, and there's there are actually supposed to be like a total of I think around sixty characters in general, <clears throat> and some most of them aren't superheroes, but still. That's yeah. a lot of, you know, characters who have all had their own movies and for them to get screen time in a movie that will maybe be two and a half hours at the most, you would think. Uh, yeah, they're, they're probably each only going to get around 10 minutes of screen time unless they're one of the trademark original Avengers. So, you know, it, it's not surprising and I think it's totally fine, especially since with the Spider-Man news that we're getting now is that the Spider-Man Homecoming sequel that's in the works is going to play a much bigger part in how the Marvel Universe continues after Avengers 4 arrives in 2019. Yeah, and everybody's using this word Phase 4. I think Feige has said that there's probably, like, he, the phases are going to be gone after Phase yeah, 3. Yeah, he basically said that we it's it's... He's not even sure if he could call it, you know, the phase. It's just whatever the next part of it is. And what it seems like to me... I feel like what's going to happen is that we're going to start we're going to get maybe a more of a split between the Marvel movies because uh James Gunn and Kevin Feige have already talked about how they're working on Guardians of the Galaxy 3 which will set the stage for the next 10 years of movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and there's been talk about that being merely isolated to the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe. So maybe whatever's happening with Spider-Man will be independent from that, and that will be the, you know, the Earth-bound story of whatever's happening in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And while they'll still exist in the same world, they just won't be crossing over the way that they do in Infinity War. Um, um, and, and we do know that this is going to be uh, Peter Parker's sophomore, or wait, no, junior year of high school. Um, and this movie comes out after the Avengers movies, do you know? Yeah, Homecoming 2 is supposed to come out after Avengers 4, which is why they're not saying anything as to like how it's going to you know set up the MCU after that. This is going to be super interesting because I feel like even movies um, like Captain Marvel and Ant-Man and Wasp take place in between the two Infinity War movies. And, and until we – I'm pretty sure that those two movies are going to be – you know, in between movies where they, you know, the, the world that they exist in and, and maybe even like the consequences are set up by that first infinity war movie. So it's, it's going to yeah. be weird to be hearing information about those or even, you know, the Spider-Man movie before we actually get to see, you know, the thing that sets those up for sure. Um, uh, did and Feige, um, Feige said that they've sketched out the entire trilogy so far. So um, it, it's interesting to know that they've you know kind of planned for this. I, you see other movie studios getting 
you know, uh, Universal with the Dark Universe, get, you know, getting uh, a lot of flack for, you know, planning out storylines and characters in advance. Uh, but I, I think there's a – is it different because it's the MCU and they already have a track record of doing that and it's not the first film? Yeah, absolutely. Marvel has an immense amount of goodwill from fans where they can plan out as far as they want to and they know that Marvel actually has – a legitimate plan in store that and you know it's we've already seen that with the, even even the less they're more obscure characters like dr strange and ant-man that fans are pretty much on board to see what marvel has in store and so if and with especially with a character like spider-man them planning that far out isn't anything to like gawk at or, or worry about because i imagine they even had to to so that they could coordinate with sony and you know approve the deal to keep this collaboration going between them yeah and, and this collaboration is confusing because, you know, they've announced a Venom movie. They've announced the uh, Silver Stable and Black Cat movie. Um, and Amy Pascal has come out and said that, you know, Tom Holland could appear in those movies. But those movies are not part of the MCU. Um, I, I don't understand why and, they don't just – I feel like the best solution to me would be just to have a new – live-action Spider-Man in those movies and make it Miles Morales. Like, I know they're working on an animated Spider-Man movie with Miles Morales in that role, but it would be the perfect time to basically have an alter, you know, another Marvel universe, which there are plenty of Marvel universes that exist in the comics even, you know, where they're... You don't think that would confuse everyday movie... Like, I talk to everyday moviegoers, and they don't even know that this Spider-Man isn't the third Spider-Man of the, you know, this last... The previous... Yeah, no, I've I've talked to people like that too, and so I mean, on one level, it could be confusing, I guess, but at the same time, if it's confusing for those audiences and they're still seeing those movies, does it really matter if they're confused? But t- talking about confusing, Amy Pascal, the the producer who used to be the head of Sony, came out and talked to Eric Davis of Fandango, and she tried to clarify the situation, and I don't think this quote clarifies anything. She she says, um, everybody ha- seems to have misunderstood what I said. And so I'm glad this, for a chance to say it. All the characters are part of the Marvel comic book universe. That makes sense, right? Right. And they're all interrelated in that universe. That makes sense as well. Spider-Man is now part of the MCU as he was created to be in the beginning. I guess. Uh, the other things that Sony are doing which are characters from the Marvel comic book universe, are independent, separate franchises. Both Venom and Silver Sable and Black Cat. So they're together in the Marvel comic book universe, but not in the Marvel cinematic universe. Right. And yeah, and they've started to confirm that more and more now, which, you know, I don't know how a Venom movie works without Spider-Man, um, and even less so how a Black Cat Silver Sable movie works without Spider-Man. Uh, it seems Venom like so- only exists because of Spider-Man. I don't. I don't even think you can have that character without Spider-Man. It just. I don't know. I mean, I can see how you can do it because I mean, you could have the story of Eddie Brock being taken over by this symbiote suit, you know, uh, and everything. And you know, but but yeah, I mean, it's. I I just don't see what the point is. Like, it seems like Sony is just you know throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what'll stick. <laughs> yeah, and it it just seems like you know fans wanted to be part of the MCU. Um, and it, it, it seems like the leadership over there is not willing to give that money away, but, um, I'm interested to see if the movies do well, <laughs> if they don't do well, maybe, maybe it'll be another, uh, you know, a 
homecoming situation where Iron Man has to step in. Um, but the other big news from the Spider-Man uh, stuff is Miles Morales, who you mentioned is in the animated Spider-Man. Um, he might be coming to the live-action MCU world. Um, well, it seems like more so they're just saying that he exists somewhere in the MCU. Not necessarily that they plan on bringing him into the fray. Yes. Uh, so I wouldn't consider the spoilers, but um, John Watts, the director of Spider-Man Homecoming, said that uh, he always wanted Donald Glover to be in the movie. Um, he appears in the movie as kind of like a thug. I'm not, not going to spoil his role. Um, but um, but uh, his name's Aaron Davis, and uh, John Watts says that he has a ne- you know he could have a nephew in New York City, and um, Feige confirms he does have a nephew. He has a nephew, which is you know obviously saying that you know Miles does exist somewhere in that MCU, but does that mean we'll ever see him? Oh, that's interesting because, huh, yeah. Well, so and this isn't a spoiler, but my, I mean, Miles Morales does play a bad guy in, in that movie, and Miles Morales' family does have uh, criminal elements to it, which yeah. adds to you know his character background as Spider-Man. So th- uh, that's kind of an interesting way to tie it in. Um, I, I, mean, I don't know if anything... It's interesting because like, I feel like M- Marvel Mar- can na- is now planning out far in advance. And this could be something that they're setting up for possibly after Spider-Man Homecoming 3 or whatever that's going to be called. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, why not put the seeds in there just in case they need them? Right. Um, so, yeah. So, all that with, uh, is the Spider-Man news. Uh, we have uh, two last bits of news. Um, first of all, we have some, uh, some sequels uh, in development. Uh, did you want to talk about the accounting sequel? Sure. Why not? Um, we all remember the accountant. Uh, <laughs> Do we? Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, the, so the accountant came out back in the fall. It's a movie starring Ben Affleck. It's this action thriller where he plays this savant mathematician who <laughs> uh, cooks the books for criminal organizations, and because of that, he's also very well trained in. Uh, handling guns and martial arts because he has to make sure that he can protect himself if anything <laughs> crazy ever goes down. But, by the way, Brad, I, I know what you said just makes sense, but it's the but, most ridiculous. No, thing. but no, but it is it is crazy. Um, and because he's a savant, he has autistic tendencies, um, which adds another interesting element to it. And so, yeah, apparently this movie was successful enough. Um, it pulled in 155 million uh, worldwide, which includes the domestic total. Um, and it seems like the movie has gotten like kind of like a an exp- extended life on home video because it, I've seen tons of people watching it on airplanes. Uh, a lot of people have talked about it since it came out on home video, and it's on it's on HBO now. So I think that people have kind of latched onto it, and it's kind of almost the same way that Edge of Tomorrow found life on home video, and now it's warranting a sequel in development at Warner Brothers. And they're bringing back uh, Bill Dubuque as the writer and Gavin O'Connor as director. Um, there's no word on when they're planning on shooting it or anything like that, especially since Ben Affleck is supposed to still be Batman for director Matt Reeves. Yeah, Matt Reeves uh, came out this week and said he's he's st- Ben Affleck's still on board to play Batman. But let's for- not forget that a week before Ben Affleck removed himself as from directing Batman, he was saying something about how he was still directing Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, 
But when I first heard this, and I said this in the Slash on Slack channel, uh, I'm like, oh my god, Ben Affleck is going to end up starring in the Accountant sequel instead of being Batman and Matt Reeves the Batman. Um, and you know, one thing that I will say is the Accountant knows that it's kind of a silly action movie, and it's a better Jason Bourne sequel than Jason Bourne was. And it actually made me want to see if Universal and Warner Brothers could figure out some kind of way to have Ben Affleck and Matt Damon go head to head as Jason Bourne and the accountant. (laughs) Because I would watch the shit out of that movie. (laughs) It's not the cinematic universe that they wanted, but it's the one that they deserve. That's the one we need. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh, there's another sequel uh, on its way. It's The Conjuring 3, uh, which might be good news, but the the catch is that James Wan, the director of the original, is most likely not going to return as director. Uh, David Leslie Johnson, who co-wrote The Conjuring 2 um, and uh, Orphan, has been hired to write... um, the third adventure of Ed and Lorraine uh, Warren. Uh, We don't know any plot details, uh, but for me, with James Wan out of the director's seat, this is just like those Annabelle movies. I I just don't care. What about you? Yeah. No, I was not impressed by Annabelle either. And they they keep planning more spinoffs. Like there's that one, The Nun, that's coming out. And then the uh, the one with the tall man I think was the other one that was recently announced so yeah they're creating their own Ed and Lorraine cinematic universe it's funny how the cinematic universes that the studios plan for like the dark universe you know they never go well but the ones that like you know the Conjuring was supposed to be a one and done you know horror film that was gonna you know be released make some money and you know one weekend and then be out of theaters. And now that has a cinematic universe, and that is yeah. insane to me. Um, and the last, lastly on the news list uh, uh, is Dan Harmon uh, explains the Rick and Morty season three delay. So, Brad, explain to me, why is Rick and Morty season three taking so long? Uh, as Dan Harmon said in this long tweet thread that he posted while he was hungover over the weekend, there's really no interesting story behind why it's delayed there have been rumors that dan Harmon and justin roiland the co-creators of rick and morty um have been fighting and that's been creating uh plenty of delay for the season to find the third season to finally come together but dan Harmon made this you know big tweet thread saying that we haven't been fighting if, if we did that's something that we wouldn't be able to keep secret because we couldn't help but talk about it ourselves uh it sounds like they just waited too long to get started writing and the writing process just took them longer than they anticipated. And that's why there's been an extra delay between the second and third season. So it's nothing glamorous, but of course the internet loves, you know, a more gossipy story than the real story. Um, so if anything, you know, I just, nah, I just can't, I want to see the new episodes ever since they did the surprise season three premiere on April fool's day. I've wanted to see where it's going to go. And so it's still supposed to come sometime this summer. I would assume, late july early august but yeah well there's no date set yet um and that is it for movie news uh every every episode of this podcast we're gonna go into from movie news into one uh, a focus on one of the features on the site uh one of the features on the site today is brad talking about fistful of fingers the first movie of ed Wright, which 
I don't believe has been released anywhere, right? It's they've uh, they've yeah it's, at least it's not available to buy. They have they've played it in the United Kingdom, and then it had its U.S. premiere at CineFamily back in 2015, and then just uh, earlier this month it had its second ever screening in a U.S. theater at the Music Box Theater in Chicago, which is where I was lucky enough to see it. Um, and so I, I went, what, what did you think? Because I've I've seen clips of this. I went to an Edgar Wright. Uh, uh, presentation at the LA Film Festival a few years back, and he showed a couple of clips from from this film. And it, I mean, it looked—you could definitely see his style and personality, even though you know the quality of it wasn't up to the par. You know, it was digital video, I believe. Right? No, that's actually—that's that, oh, he actually shot it on sixteen millimeter, apparently. Sixteen millimeter. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it, it, this was really cool for me because I'm I'm a huge Edgar Wright fan. Um, and this being his first movie that he made when he was 20 on a budget of $15,000, I was just really excited to see what his first movie was like, you know, at such a young age, you know, before he had made Shaun of the Dead. And it was it was really fascinating to see because, first of all, the production quality was actually better than I was anticipating. All of the clips that I had seen were VHS quality because they're clips that had been shown on, like, British chat shows that Edgar Wright had appeared in when he was a teenager – but that's because he actually made this movie on VHS when he was younger, and when he was 20, he remade it just with better equipment and more more money. And it's surprisingly wait. So fun. he remade the entire like the like he didn't change it. He just completely well. So so he I don't I don't know I don't think he changed uh, anything from the original because like the they show so there was a pre-roll show before they showed the movie at Music Box Theater where. They showed some of the clips from when he appeared on these chat shows with it, and there's uh, the sequences that they played, which were VHS quality and not from the the 16 millimeter version, uh, were pretty much beat for beat the exact same thing. He and and they were just recreated with higher quality in the the updated version. So I don't know if he had to add anything beyond that. I know that. One thing that they he said they did have to do because in order to meet the minimum feature length. Uh, requirements the so the assembly edit of the movie he said was 72 minutes long and the an assembly edit is the edit where you have everything that you shot nothing has been cut yet is already in the movie and it still wasn't long enough to be a feature so they added an animated opening credit sequence a slow rolling closing credit sequence and there's a scene in the middle of the movie that takes place at night in pitch black where it's just voiceover (laughs) <laughs> and, and that's and that's how they that's how they added some length to it so so it, so it could be feature length so it ended up at 78 minutes wow yeah but and so but yeah so the i was surprised by how funny this movie was it is a straight up spaghetti western spoof in the style of it's it's like monty python meets uh mel brooks meets uh sergio leone it's a parody in the same way that like the naked gun and airplane and uh blazing saddles are it's extremely silly, but it's very funny be, like because of that. There are meta gags about you know seeing where you see boom mic operators and like there's a car that rolls through one scene and there's uh, silly puns and just there, there's all sorts of just goofy stuff in it. But it's it's very funny and very clever, and you can absolutely see Edgar Wright's style in this movie. There, uh, his his fast paced precise editing style is there. Uh, you know he he did it as intricate a camera movements as he could with you know the the equipment that he had 
And there's a real love for the genre there. When you look at movies like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and The World's End, he's definitely pulling inspiration from the genre movies that he loved, uh, whether it's zombie movies, action movies, sci-fi movies. In this case, it's it's Western movies. And there's a respect and love for the genre while simultaneously making fun of it and using it for jokes. It's not like the terrible parodies like Epic Movie and Meet the Spartans where they're just using the frame of a film genre to make to- uh, pop culture references that are only relevant for that year and then no one ever remembers ever again. It's a genuine parody of the genre, and I, I was surprised by just how funny funny it is. And okay. after hearing that, I'm sure many people want to know where can I see this. That's kind of the problem: is you really can't. Uh, there was a time when a copy apparently made it on to YouTube for a bit, but it's not available to buy anywhere, and it very rarely screens. Like I said, the the first time it screened in the U.S. was 2015, and this past June. Uh, was only the second time it had screened in the U.S. And so it it doesn't happen very often. And so there's not really an easy way to see it. So if ever an opportunity does come around where you can see it, you should absolutely take that opportunity because it's not easy to, to see it. Well, it's great to, to hear about it from someone who did see it. Um, uh, th- that You can read a lot more about Fistful of Fingers on SlashFilm.com and Brad's uh, uh, recap and review of the film. Uh, other features on the site today: Alex Riverio. Uh, yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> Alex Riverio uh, lists twelve things you should know about Baby Driver director Edgar Wright, and uh, he also did a review of Silicon Valley's uh, finale. Um, Josh Gormayer is exploring the Japanese roots of Star Wars, and our own Hoi Tran Bui explains. Why War for the Planet of the Apes is a brilliant blockbuster, limited by its worship of the genre. Um, and you can read all that. And you can also read uh, Brad has a alternate take on uh, War for the well, Planet not, of the Apes. It's not really an alternate take. Uh, Hoi Tran just has one specific criticism about the movie because she still thinks it's great. But she has one thing that she had a problem with that kept her from really loving it. Um, and it's, it's something that I actually I think it's a fascinating criticism. And she makes a comparison that I actually made that was more favorable in my review. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting perspective to have on it. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I love the movie. Well, you can read all that at SlashFilm.com. Where can we find more of your work, Brad? I write at SlashFilm.com all the time. You can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And uh, if you like listening to podcasts about movies, which it seems like you do because you're here. <laughs> Uh, you can listen to a podcast that I do with a friend of mine called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, where we talk about movies, trailers, and plays movie games and just bust each other's balls a lot. Well, that is great. You can find more of my work at SlashFilm.com, Twitter.com, slash SlashFilm, and hopefully we'll be seeing you on the next one of these SlashFilm dailies. Thanks for listening.
Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER and partnership with MGM Northfield Park.